Welcome to Did You Know, the podcast dedicated to telling the stories of the executives of colour who have led the way in the UK music business. Today we're in conversation with BBC Five Live presenter Nihal Arthanaika, one of the UK's foremost broadcasters and a man who's worked in many areas of the UK music business. As with all our guests, we like to ask them why they chose the music industry. Here's what Nihal had to say when we asked him. It was a passion for music which was fulfilled by being an artist for a little while and then realising that that wasn't going to pay the bills. And then basically, I guess, networking and then being recognised by a gentleman that both you and I know very well, Shabs, Joe Bamputra, who, of course, started Media Village PR and then Relentless Records, which is where he is today. And uh, he gave me my first job, yeah, in the music industry. I'm still, to this day, Adrian, like fascinated by how music works, the mechanics of how an artist becomes an artist. I'm, I'm fascinated by that. What's been great to see, because obviously you and I have known each other for a number of years, and I've, as I say to a lot of people, it's been a real pleasure to see the kind of the way your career has risen. Where I want to start is, I want to know what the young Nihal Arthur Nike was like. What was his dreams and ambitions? What did he really want to do? He wanted to just be someone. You know, he wanted to be respected and recognised. I think if I go back to the core of what it is, Adrian, it's an Asian kid growing up in a white area with all the kind of disrespect that comes with that, but also that feeling of being always on the outside. And then hip-hop comes along, hip-hop culture, and then suddenly having some melanin is a kind of cool thing, and it gives you a sense of a tribe. That young kid wanted to be a rapper first, but ultimately just wanted to be someone. He wanted to escape the little village that felt often quite lonely and isolating, escape the small town, which became kind of suffocating. He wanted to be something in that big city called London. That's what he wanted to be. And he didn't really know what that was. Was that feeling of suffocation, the feeling of suffocation of the isolation of, of a boy of colour or the fact that just the surroundings were isolating and they were they were strangling the opportunities and the dreams that you had. Which which of those was it? Or was it a combination of both? Both. I looked at certain people, and that's not to look down my nose at them, although well, it would probably come across that way. And I just didn't want to be born, live and die in the same place. You know, I just felt like there was a world. Remember, I was going to London, you know, 15, 16. We were jumping on trains going to hang out in Covent Garden on a Saturday where all the hip-hop heads hung out, talking about graffiti, ending up at someone's house, sleeping on his couch, going to Notting Hill Carnival before there was a curfew, right? And watching people throwing rocks at police late into the night when they're trying to shut the sounds down. This is a kid from Essex, from a village in Essex, right? And then I'm going back to this village, this little lane with fields around it, and you're going, there is a massive world out there. And I want a piece of that. I went to a school where, again, I worked out, you could be one of the geeky kids, especially, and there weren't many Asians, right? You could be one of the geeky kids and life would not be great. Or 
you can be one of the livelier kids, not take any bollocks. And I chose that kid to be. Not that I was a hooligan or or hard or anything, but I just realised that if I wanted to be respected, I have to stand up for myself. You know, my parents, they came, they came to this country, you know, and they put us in a comprehensive school in Essex, right? They didn't put us in a grammar school or didn't put us in a private school because they couldn't afford it. They put us in this school. What did they expect? But, and this is where my parents are amazing, they let us be. You know, they never told us who to marry. They never told us, you know, we're dragging you down the temple. They weren't those guys, you know, they weren't. So we're very, very integrated. We had friends of all different colors. I feel blessed that I grew up in a place where Asian, black, white people mingled, right? We weren't segregated from each other. It pains me that my dad, who died, you know, I joined Radio One in 2002 and he died in 2000. So he never got to see any of these crazy things that happened. And we've both done really well, my brother and I. You know, he's in IT and did an accountancy degree, went that more traditional route, you know, and I went the route I went. What I find really interesting, Nihal, is that even though you didn't have that initial thirst or say you say you didn't have the initial thirst for knowledge, that's clearly changed over the years because you have your degree now and you have an incredible platform four days of the week that you use and you know you're one of the nation's most revered and loved broadcasters and we're going to get to that point but what i really want to talk about was something i didn't know i want to talk about mc crazy and the muddy funksters yeah 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 yeah. (laughs) all of that all of that yeah that's the thing about it right is um sometimes it's easy to get it twisted when you hear me on five live right because you think oh he's this like middle class kind of journalisty kind of bloke right but you know we were battle MCing. i was battle MCing on playgrounds when i was a, a kid you know i was going on dave pierce on radio <laughs> london fresh starts of the week on a monday freestyling winning that going into his show and recording something when i was i don't even know how old i was must have been 15 or something coming up to london doing that meeting jazzy b before muddy funksters you know we would I put on, I was promoting hip hop jams, like rap yeah. jams. Like I was 16 years old doing that in Harlow, like putting on with other people a, a rap night and putting it together and doing that. I was a hip hop obsessive. And that's my basis. Like I've got, I've got the words hip hop tattooed on me because hip hop means everything to me. Collapse Lung happened. So this was this like metal rap band, right? And this this is really interesting <laughs> because people who are kind of big guys in the music industry now, like Darkest Bees and uh, and Jonathan Dickens, who manages Adele, and it was then a scout at Warner Brothers back then. Collapse Lung became this A and R frenzy. We put a gig on in Harlow Town at a venue called the Square. Twenty A and R people turned up. It was insane, and they were all like, obviously some passed, but some people have said we got deals coming in, deals coming in. And in the end, the guy who kind of run the band, really, we went with a label that was run by Steve Lamack. He went on to sign Elastica and I think Credit to the Nation was on there. It was like this alternative. And we were this like kind of comedy metal rap act. Um, and the NME loved us. Joe Wiley played us on Radio One. And suddenly it was like, wow, 
doing support tours, playing festivals, going up and down motorways in the back of a, a van, <laughs> like proper, like Hull Adelphi, King Tut's Wawa Hut. And it was just everywhere we were going. And, you know, I think Jonathan Dickens came to see us a few times, actually. Um, but unfortunately, he couldn't sign us and he had to settle for Adele like 25 yeah. years later. But what a mistake. Yeah, I know. What a massive, I mean, you know, we had to par him off and that was it. That was it. His career went downhill from there. But, um, yeah, so, and then from there, um, Go Discs, which was a label that was a really interesting label, actually. Beautiful South, Paul Weller, Gabrielle, or Porter's Head. Andy McDonald was the guy that run it. And he yeah. really wanted to sign me, really. He wanted to sign me. And... So I just did two singles with Collapse Lung. Then I left them because I'd had my own DJ and producer from before Collapse Lung, and I brought them in. I went back to my boys and went, listen, let's do, let's do some demos. So we did some demos. GoDisc signed us. I sacked off Collapse Lung, said, look, I'm leaving because I'm going to go and do my own thing with um, GoDiscs. And then they went on to have a massive hit with uh, a, a song called Eat My Goal. Yes. <laughs> and it was just like, oh, geez, brilliant. So there was a lot of regret there. Um, and, you know, Muddy Funksters, we did some amazing demos. But we were making, you're talking about, I don't know, like 93, something like that. I'm in my early 20s. And we're making these crazy demos of like where we're, we're doing songs about mental health after Kurt Cobain killed himself. We're doing hip hop songs about suicide and we're doing tripped out records about imagining being in space. But remember Adrian, the nineties people didn't really want to hear English accents rapping. No. Right. You know, this was pre dizzy. This was pre any of the grime thing by ages and there were acts i mean there's no question that london posse demon boys hijack there were without question there were but they weren't commercially very successful um and i think london posse was signed to ireland we were signed to go discs but we didn't really fit anywhere because people wanted hip-hop to be hood and we weren't hood our dj was to be fair our dj was was hood definitely hood but the two of us wasn't we were just these these kind of kids who got degrees making this out there hip-hop and just too early i know it sounds kind of cliched and maybe even bitter and then after i think two years we got dropped i decided the longevity in this game it's not on a mic it's behind the scenes and that was where i first came across you was your next incarnation in the business. And I know when you and I say when we talk, you're almost reverential when you talk about your time at Media Village and what it meant to you. And it'd be really good for the listeners to hear you talk about that because that's your start. That was your school, right? Oh, without question, you know. So Shabs came up to me and he won't remember this. And for those people who don't know Shabs, you know, this is the guy who's, if you're listening to Heady One or tom walker this is the guy who brought them to you but let's go back even further so solid crew 21 seconds is relentless it's shabs right mega man will like i've been there when mega man's pulled shabs on stage go this guy if it wasn't for this guy and people don't really know that people don't know a lot about 
where Shabs was and where Relentless was at the beginning of the garage thing and how clever he was. And because he came from a promotions background, promotions is a really fascinating and I think vital way of understanding the music industry. I think A&R is good, obviously, because that's the making of the records. But promotions understands the interface between the industry and the public. Ultimately, the promotions people, whether you're in radio, whether you're in TV, you're speaking to the top of the pops or for, for those people who don't know, it was the biggest music show at the time. And you're speaking to all of these people and they know what their customers want. And you've got to kind of translate what you're doing and what the label's done to those producers and persuade them that this is something that you need to be on. And also you have to understand people really do. But I'm kind of going ahead of myself because before I did national promotions, especially TV plugging, you know, we were just on street teams and all that. Man, you should kind of expand on that and kind of tell him about a, a typical day in the life of Nihal Arthur when he was like in his early 20s working for Media Village. So our offices were in Leicester Square, a place called Queen's House, which is extraordinary, right? So you're this, you're in your 20s and you're working in Leicester Square. You're walking out of your office and you're in Soho in like minutes, right? And you're just thinking, this is amazing, right? And you're working acts. You know, there's boxes and boxes and boxes of the score, the Fugees is in there. There's like Wu-Tang Clan stickers everywhere. There's Gangstar stickers everywhere. These are all acts that, specifically in the case of Gangstar and Wu-Tang, like you were a teenager going, what? I love this. And then my job was really to go and get new business. So I was the salesperson. Like I go into the label. I'd be drumming up contact. So I'd be out two, three times a night. We'd go to a gig, then go to the after party, then go to the after after party. So you're jumping between the hip hop and R&B scene Monday night at 10 rooms. And then you're Tuesday night. You might be watching some band at the Astoria. And then you're at Brixton Academy and then you're at the Brixton Academy after party. Then you've got the passes so you can go and chat to people and you're just networking. You're doing what a 20 year old in London should be doing. Should be out all the time. And you're making these connections and then you just end up making that call. Say, look, we can come and see you. Listen, this is a street team we're doing. We're doing working with S2. We're working with Columbia. We're working with these guys. Can we just come in and see you? And then you go in and see Guy Holmes at Gut Records or Bob Workman, who was the marketing guy at the time. Or you'd go in and see um, Gordon Hagen at S2, right? Gordy, legend. Gordy, right? So you'd go in and see these, these people and you'd really just be trying to pitch, right? And it was interesting because the hustle was, even though we were in Leicester Square and we had this office in Leicester Square, it was chaos, right? It was obviously chaos. And you'd go into Sony, which was these big building on great marlborough street it was all glass and everyone looked glamorous right they're all wearing maharishi this and maharishi that and jeremy you know like prada and whatever right and you walk in there and they treat you like that right they treat you they you know they'll make you wait downstairs in reception for half an hour why because they can right and you have to take that on the chin right you just have to that's because you're you're new to it and it's a valuable learning it's a valuable learning tool. What did you learn from Shabs that you still carry with you to this day? The one thing, and I think it's something that's really important, is 
Shabs was superb at A&Ring people. So in the same way that a record company will spot a young act and say, I want that act. We want them early. We want to sign them. We want to make two singles. Then we want to make an album. Then we might sign them for, well, we'd probably sign them for one album and then four options, but we might not do that. We might do a singles deal. Shabs was brilliant at that with people. And I was one of them. He just saw me and said, I don't know what you can do for me, but I know there's something. And I'm going to find out what that is. And I'm going to give you the space. But I will be hardcore. And I will expect a lot. I still see 20-year-olds and go, okay, that person's got something. There's something in them. And there's, you know, a number of people in the music industry now that will say, you were the first one that talked to me. You were the first one. So there's a guy called Gov, Catalyst Management. And they manage Mist and Steel Bangles. And it goes, he said, he said, you were the first person to ever recognize anything in me. So I, you know, I remember years ago when I first met him and I thought there's something about this kid. Um, and I introduced him to Guy Moot, who, you know, signed Amy Winehouse for publishing and got oh, thousands of acts. I mean, it's extraordinary career. Um, and that's what I believe in, you know, the a and of people. And I got that from Shabs, undoubtedly. What did that mean to you at that time to have someone foster that belief in you? To have someone that believes in you is quite extraordinary. And, you know, Shab's made it hard. You know, he'd made it hard. You had to work for it. And also as well, he had a knack of actually never quite believing that you had impressed him. Incredibly hard taskmaster. And you were only as good as your last pitch, right? You either bring the business in or you don't. It's binary. And if you don't, you're shit again. That is kind of terrifying, but it, it, it's it's difficult because it when you're in company of people who haven't been brought up in that way, it can make you frustrated. They don't get how hard this is. I always say to people, Adrian, and I know you'd agree with this, is that it's not that difficult to get into the music industry, but fuck me, it's difficult to stay in it. The longevity is the thing. I want to jump forward to 2002 because you're with Shabs, but 2002 was a pivotal year for you. Let's talk about that. Tell us about that moment in 2002 where you get the call from the BBC. Yeah, so Shabs called me and said, Radio One are looking for a specialist music DJ, Asian Beats. I'm like, okay. He said, you should go for it. They'd auditioned like 20-odd people before me. And I wasn't aware of this. So I just go in, do my thing. So they were about to make their decision. In fact, they'd made their decision for it to be Bobby Friction and this other dude that was going to be the new Asian beat show on Radio 1. Then I do my audition and the other dude gets sacked off, right? Because Radio 1 just go, oh, okay, who's this guy? And they quite rightly said, look, Bobby's, Bungra Bollywood guy, Nihal's the more urban guy for that, because that's what they used it at the time, black music, right? He understands that world. He's well-connected. He's fairly eloquent on a microphone. So they got me to do a second pilot to make sure the first one wasn't a fluke, and the second one was shit, right? But they still went with it. They still, And, you know, that, that, I don't know, two or three weeks when they're making that decision, just the longest time, man. I remember having a massive tear up because at the moment, at that time, I was doing 
kids BBC. I was doing I was doing a Saturday morning show on CBBC before CBBC anyone was watching it. It was like twelve people watching it, and they wanted me to do something where I had to stand around with some puppets, and I just went, I'm not doing that because if the head of specialist at Radio One sees that. He's just going to go, well, that's not a specialist radio DJ, right? So geezer. And I remember the guy going, well, you have to do it. And I went, I'm not, I'm not doing it. Just not doing it. And I remember refusing to do it. And it had a big kickoff. And thankfully about next weekend or whatever, or even on the same weekend, I got the call from Radio 1 just saying, you've got the job. What did it mean to the Asian community to have that station, to have that voice? Do you know what, mate? I, I don't think the Asian community cared. Firstly, there are Asian communities. There are lots of them, right? Someone from Punjab is very different to someone from Bangladesh who is very different to someone from Sri Lanka. So it was it was weird. It was really weird at first. And then for some reason, and it's not coincidence, obviously Radio 1 knew that something was coming. Just loads of stuff happened. You know, there was like Dr. Dre sampling Bollywood beats, Timberland was making Bollywood beats. Jay-Z jumped on a Punjabi MC record. And this is, you know, Punjabi MCs from Coventry, right? Made Beware of the Boys, Mundi Antobach gave a huge, huge record, right? Sampling Buster Rhymes. It's just insane. And then Jay Sean comes along, Rishi Rich Project, Juggy D. They're on top of the pops. We're going with them to Glastonbury. There's this thing happening, this massive thing. You know, we're, I am with, uh, Juggy and Rishi and Jay in their little people carrot. They're getting chased down the street in Southall by girls. Like this had not happened, right? Because these weren't kind of Indian blokes doing Bhangra from the 80s. These were kids who looked like those kids. So that early noughties thing was insane. It was insane. To be at the center of a movement like that, which unfortunately fizzled out, fizzled out after a couple of years, but at the, for those couple of years, from like 2003 to 2005, was kind of extraordinary. Or 2006 was extraordinary time. Really was. I don't think people who were not around for, for that period of time really can understand how bright that firework shone. Yeah, it did. It did. I mean, it was not dissimilar to when the Afrobeat thing happened, right? And suddenly African kids had, you know, WizKid and these people to look to, you know, these Nigerian and Ghanaian kids. And suddenly these Punjabi kids and these Pakistani kids were like, wow, it's like Jay Sean is on top of the pops. That's mad. The Asian underground thing, the Talvin Singh winning the Mercury Music Prize thing wasn't really an Asian thing, right? It was a kind of Guardian reading. Oh, my God, look, this is amazing. They're mixing electronic beats with sitars, and it's like, cool. But it, it weren't really a thing. Like, I didn't know any Asians where I grew up. And I, to be fair, I didn't grow up in a very Asian area. But even then, even once we got to Radio 1 and the Rishi Rich and Jay Sean things, these guys weren't listening to that alternative music because it was alternative music, right? In the same way that most white people weren't listening to Square Pusher, right? Like, it, it, you know, it was underground dance or, or quite, quite, like I said, Guardian reading kind of world music right that kind of horrible world music thing but this was real you know kids loved it they really did and the bungra scene was crazy dr zeus dj sanj this like back to 
this kind of mixing of hip hop and bhangra and garage with RDB mm. coming out of Leeds. And suddenly you've got this, this movement, but unfortunately it's still small. So, you know, we're going to um, Radio One DJ dinners, right, which they used to have once a year. And Judge Jules is turning up in a Bentley. And we're coming on a travel card because the Asian scene are paying you 500 quid, yeah. 750 a gig. You're not getting four figures for gigs, right? Like, it's just not happening, yeah. right? And, and that was another thing that you just saw. You were just like, and it's almost brought me back to being in a village again and saying, this is not big enough for me. It's great. And it got me to, geez, uh, you know, I was at the MTV Awards in India. I was DJing in Singapore, in Bangkok. I was, you know, going to all these places. But it was never super showbiz. The great thing about the British black music scene, as we're seeing now, is the collaborations, even international collaborations, when Burner Boy comes and spits on a UK artist track. But the Asian scene was so divided. It was so divided. And you just see it. Once some British Indian DJs were playing a track by a Dutch Pakistani artist called Imran Khan. Big tune, massive tune, right? And a couple of other British Sikh kids came up and told him to turn that Paki music off, right? That's like one group of Asians saying to another group of Asians, right? You know, it was divided. And th these are things I'd never come across because when, you, when you're an ethnic minority in an area where there aren't many ethnic minorities, you all get together. You don't, you're not interested in that. You're not thinking about the Sikh and the Muslim and the Hindu and the Buddhist and the Christian. And you're not doing that. And then suddenly you're like, wow, you guys hate each other. What's wrong with you? But there's been an evolution in black music where clearly it's artists are coming together. They are collaborating. But that didn't happen 20 years ago. No, that's something that's really evolved and come to fruition in the past maybe three, four, five years. So with that in mind, do you think that this current generation amongst the Asian communities are likely to be able to, to, to take that on, collaborate, bring great music and have another moment as you guys had in 2003, 2005? There's been no big MC. There's no Asian Dave. There's no Asian Stormsea. There's no Asian Central Sea. There's no Asian Heady One, AJ Tracy. Like There's none or rd or h so there's so, white rappers there's black rappers but there are no asian rappers so why do you think that is i think that there's a perception that asians are not cool i think there's a perception that asians are not hood but if you go to blackburn and bradford and places like that they are as hood as it gets right no question no question i think Black people are more, and this is going to sound quite controversial, I think, I think black people are more accepted in British popular culture than Asian people are, right? Because I think Asian people, and this is none of this is scientific, I think this is all perception based on being the age I am and just looking at the world as it is. I think there's a, when you see Asians, you see doctors and you see Pretty Patel and you see Rishi Sunak, right? You don't see any Asian footballers don't see any Asian rappers, don't see any Asian pop stars, right? Because also as well, you could argue, well, you've got your pop stars, you've got Bollywood, right? What do you want a piece of our thing for as well, right? You And you will see, unfortunately, you will see it um, when Asian MCs do 
GRM dailies or they do YouTube things, you, you see racist comments. And sometimes those racist comments are from other kids of color about corner shops and curry and all of this kind of stuff. We're from a generation where we, we weren't segregated from each other. You know, we're from a generation that people like yourself, Adrian, would respect someone like me because you knew I loved the culture, right? And I paid respect to the culture and I paid my dues to reflect that and respect that. But whereas now, I don't know. I don't know. You know, like university campuses, you would have a, a black society probably, and that would be Asian and black together. Now you'd have a Hindu society, a Muslim society. You might have a Nigerian society, a Ghanaian society. It's all a bit more segregated. With that in mind, do you think that racism has become segregated? So the racists or those that purport to have racist intentions are very, very definite about their targets. So, you know, blacks in a certain part of the country. I mean, obviously, we know there have been some very, very racist intentions towards certain Asian communities up and down the country, targeted specifically at Asians. But do you think that racism has become a very segregated thing and very specific in terms of who it's aimed at, which leads to that division? People of our generation might turn around and say, racism isn't always what you think it is. For those of us that remember being chased down the street by skinheads and called N-words and P-words, we knew the intention in that. Sometimes if you think the intention is and you cancel someone, you haven't really asked yourself what their intention was. You may have taken it on face value that they've said something that due to their ignorance, lack of education, they just said, rather than just saying, okay, well, why did you do that? Through having a conversation with those people, try and understand where it comes from, why they're saying what they're saying. You know, people get to a certain age and they feel perhaps that the world is changing in a way that they are uncomfortable with. And they don't know how to articulate that. So they say all kinds of things. And then we dismiss them as being racists. When actually we've got to try and understand where that's coming from. And we had to have a conversation with them. You know, we have to. Otherwise, how are we going to learn from each other? So it's a really difficult question. I'm not really answering your question because I think it's too difficult a question to, to ask is where is racism focused on today? One of the things that you're in, you've been incredible at, Nihal, and I've always been in, not in awe of but you know i've always given you know, really respect you for it is the fact that you've never been a man to take a backward step when confronted with these issues you know more prevalent now because of social media much more prevalent and and, and in your face because of the presence you have on radio and in the media one of my great tv moments and we talk about it all the time is you on paxman taking on my man from ukip which was an unbelievable TV moment. How do you deal with that on a day-to-day basis? Well, I mean, firstly, I don't have to deal with it on a day-to-day basis, but I do. Today's a prime example where you're looking at the terrible events in Ukraine, and I'm adamant that we have to talk about it on my Five Live show, that black and brown people are being treated differently at the border to white people. And then I have to tweet, this is what black lives matter meant right this is undeniable that even in a war zone black and brown people are being treated differently at a border when people are fleeing for their lives from the onslaught of russian aggression and you have to stand up you have to stand for something adrian right like it's not look i'm not a martyr i'm definitely not i'm because i'm not allowed to be at the front of 
demonstrations and all that. I'm not allowed to do it. What I can do is within the confines of being a BBC presenter. You know, I haven't been on a picket line. I haven't strapped myself to a tank. I haven't stood in front of a tank and stopped it from moving. I've done any of those things. They're the real bravery. But the platform that I can use in the way that I can use it, I'll try and do what I can. And to answer your question about what we can do about it is what we can do because I've written a book about it is, is talk to each other is to talk, go to places that make us feel uncomfortable. And I mean that for white people as well. I don't mean that just for black and Asian people should be going to places that they feel uncomfortable. White people should too, as well. White people should be going to Southall or to Brixton or to Handsworth. They should be going to or Toxteth or whatever, right? I think there are lots of white people in Toxteth, but they, they should be going to these places and talking to people, trying to understand different experiences. That's the only way. And also to understand that poverty is the most pernicious thing of all. It's not racism. It's poverty, I think, personally. Because Emma Dabbery wrote a brilliant book about this. And Emma Dabbery was talking about how historically, in order to split the working classes, the British establishment persuaded the white working class that they were superior to black people. Up until that point, what was beginning to happen was that actually people were people were beginning to understand there's the them and there's an mm -hmm. us, right? And there's a have and there have nots and we're the have nots. And as soon as the establishment realized that this was happening, they invented color, a brilliant diversionary tactic. So as long as you understand that actually that Asian kid in that horrible house, in that horrible estate, is no different to the white kid in that horrible house, in that horrible estate. There are language and culture and food and all of that stuff. But ultimately, the dreams and aspirations that are shelved are for the same reasons. Taking it back to, to the business that we're in and you know, very specifically about the creative industries, how do you think the industry that we work in has changed in its relationship to colour and the way it treats people of colour. When we first came through, you could have a hundred black kids who could sing. But what the industry was looking for was a white kid who could sing exactly like those black people. If you put a black person on the front page of an of the NME, they'd lose tens of thousands of sales. Right? This were these were all the cliches and the things used to bring us down. And also there was always this feeling that we're doing you a favor. We're helping you out. There's a good boy. And the great thing about these, these kids, and you know, I mentioned Central Sea a few times, Stormzy, a classic example of it, is the control they have, right? The understanding of they know their worth. You know, we came through and we saw so many artists i was talking about lyndon david hall the other day what a talent i think did trevor nelson sign him to call tempo trevor did sign him to call tempo and you know but it was so hard to get this generation of tv white and they were all white white tv presenters and not presenters producers and bookers it's really hard to get them to book black artists you know it's a different time it's, you know, for anyone that argues, and John Barnes and I had a tear up on my radio show about this, for anyone that argues that there's been no progress, I think it's absurd. It's just, it's just not true. And he used this term elevated out of blackness. 
which is that Stormzy, Stormzy's success is good for Stormzy, but nobody else. And I don't agree with that. Neither do I. And I think that the majority of black and Asian people would definitely disagree with Mr. Barnes. Well, he just used that term elevated out of blackness, which I found profoundly depressing because essentially it means that, or my understanding of it means that as soon as you become successful, you're no longer black, which means what? Which means that if you're black, you must live in a council flat and you must live in a socially deprived area and go to a terrible school. What kind of message is that to send? I mean, the whole point of a Stormzy is it's about ambition. It's about trying to be better. It's about trying to raise yourself up. It's about showing that you can raise yourself up and still be that person. And I think it's really important that we remember that when we look at all these guys, which is the wonderful thing about Stormzy and Dave and the the Getzes and the Geeks, is that these guys are doing something that is very real, that's very honest, raising up themselves, but also raising up the rest of us at the same time and giving us all a platform. I mean, the thing is as well is remember, you know, when you think about Tiny Temper, you won't heard of Dummy. If you hear about um, Dave, you may not have heard of Benny Scars, but there are industries, groupings of people, agents, lawyers that are all being uplifted by this and a whole generation of kids who might not want to be Dave, they're thinking, they're thinking, who manages Dave? And then they come across this guy, Benny Scars. And then they start understanding about this guy who's managed, who's been through record companies and managed to navigate them and managed to guide Dave through his brilliant music to this extraordinary arena tour that he's just done. You know, they're building these industries. I mean, uh, Adex, I think. Max H, yeah, incredible, incredible young right, kid. Right, in his early 20s just bought a building in Manchester, yeah. turning into an entertainment hub. It's extraordinary. And the kids that he's going to bring through there, you know, he's not elevated out of blackness. He's just expanding blackness is what he's doing. One other thing I wanted to ask you about you is, do you consider yourself to be a role model? Kind of depends what that means. I'm real. That's what I think. You listen to me on the radio and you should get a damn good idea of who I am as a person. You should also get a sense of what my values are, my morals are, how I see the world. And if that aligns with how you wish the world to be, then I will be allied to you. In terms of a role model, it's weird that, isn't it? Because I'm not perfect. I can be a dickhead when I'm driving. No doubt so many times I've nearly got into a fight. Like I'm not. The problem with becoming role models is, is that they will inevitably let you down. You know, you have to be very careful. Like, just do you. And if people identify with that, and that's good, right? That's good. That's a good thing. You know, in the same way that, you know, there are people who identify with Tommy Robinson, right? And uh, while I do not agree with that and do not agree with him, to, to them, he's a role model, right? So it's very dangerous to use that word. No, and I understand that, Nehala, but it's been really interesting talking to a number of other people. And I've asked this question to two or three people that have been on the podcast. And the weight of the question bears heavy on their shoulders because of what it means and the journey they've taken and what's come after them, but also what is essentially in front of them. I'm the guy that left the door open for you. I'm not the guy who shut the door behind me. That's the difference. 
right? I'm looking to A&R the next generation of people to replace me. I'm not so insecure that I'll lock the door behind me. And there were people of color who did do that. One slightly older than us, they wanted to be the only brown or black person in that room mm. and they didn't want you in that room. And I remember I remember feeling that way with that those people and it, I, it made me think I never want to be that guy. So if there's a 25-year-old coming through now who's going to be not the next Nihal, but better than Nihal. I'll help you get to where you need to get to. And I'll give you advice on how to get shortcuts to that. Um, so you don't have to go perhaps the, the circuit, circuitous way that I had to go through it. Rather than role model, I'm the guy that will leave the door. I won't leave it fully open. I'll leave it ajar, right? So you've got to still push your way through it. But I'm definitely not closing it behind me. You know, amen to that. So let's go back to the career. A Sony Gold Award in 2003. You know, Best Radio Show UK Awards and the Sony, Sony Award for Best Speech Programme. Yeah. I think I'm the only person to win a specialist Sony and a speech. You are indeed, sir. You are indeed, which is an inc- incredible achievement. Radio on weekend, sh- weekend show and daytime as well. And in 2014, I remember sitting in a little Japanese restaurant around the back of Hanover Square. And I remember you saying man, I've been offered the chance to go to Manchester and I don't know what to do. It's eight years later. Has it played out for you, man? I think we both know, right? I mean, it, it, it's meant that someone like you I greatly admire gets a chance to, you know, uh, rate me or hate me. Thankfully, rate <laughs> me after listening to it. You know, it's like, you know, when I was talking to you then, I was doing Bits and Bobs on Radio 1 and Asian Network. And Asia Network was amazing, but it was like being in a village and you wanted to be in London. And Five Live is big ass mainstream radio station, right? Like, you know, people are doing Graham Norton's show and then doing me, right? They're doing Zoe Ball at breakfast on BBC Radio 2 and they're doing me, right? Or they're doing me first. Then they're doing BBC Breakfast. Then they're doing Graham Norton. Then they're doing Sunday Brunch. You know, they're big. Lynn manuel Miranda, Benedict Cumberbatch, Ricky Gervais. You know, it's just crazy, like crazy big Oliver Stone, right? like Tim Peake. I'm just kind of looking at a list of books that are all there of people that have been on the show and have been on, you know, Dave Grohl. You know, it's, it's Sting, Elton John, Rod Stewart, you know, and then Stormzy and Ed Sheeran and... God, Griff. And so, you know, so many different artists, actors, authors. I mean, Sebastian, I think I've interviewed like seven winners of the Costa Award and numerous winners of the Booker Prize and, uh, you know, just extraordinary. And that's Five Live, right? And that's that's normalisation, right? That's what this is about. Like diversity is about us just being normal. And I'm not changing my name, right? Like no disrespect to Bobby Friction, because that was his that was his name, that was his rock and roll name. But I'm Nihal Arfanaika. Like there's no anglicizing that. There's no one making that sound westernized or more palatable. You have to learn how to say Nihal Arthanaika. Not Nile, not Neil, <laughs> Nihal Arthanaika, right? It's the name of my father and his father. It'd be the name of my children. That it is what it is. And I'm right bang slap in the middle of daytime radio that's something to be proud of actually you know that's that that shit doesn't happen by accident it's not easy to get to those levels 
How many jobs are, how many slots are there? There's one. There's one slot for that job, right? You know, it's not like lawyers and they're brilliant at what they do, but there's just one slot. So when you drive back, and I remember you telling me a couple of weeks ago when we were talking on the phone that your new thing is to drive home without the music and just spend some time to collect your thoughts and be around you. Do you ever reflect on what you've done? No, sadly, I reflect on what I haven't done. You know, you kind of reflect, oh, God, I haven't done enough television and I haven't finished my book or, oh, God, so-and-so is doing this. Why am I not doing this? And that's that that noise, you're trying to quieten that noise a lot because it ends up obscuring. You know, you're not going to sit there and go today, you know, like yesterday was an extraordinary three hours of, quite harrowing at times conversations with people who are involved in what's going on in Ukraine. Two weeks before that, you're interviewing Dolly Parton. You know, it's a bit random, but you can't, you know, <clears throat> get in the car and it switch the sound off and just drive along and at every traffic light, look at yourself in the mirror and go, you're a bad man. <laughs> you ain't going to do that. <laughs> a bit weird, right. So you've just got to try and, um, yeah, take stock. I mean, but you just, you know, like you are Adrian, we're always moving forward, right? We've got that insecurity of like, what's yes. going to happen next, right? Even in my elderly years, I still worry that people are going to take it away from me, which is, I think, a common thing amongst all of us. I mean, it's crazy. So listen, a couple of things before we finish, and I want to try and do this quickly because you've been unbelievably generous with your time, and thank you. Tell us about the book. 70,000 words. I mean, it's a book really, Adrian, about conversation. It's about how important it is to learn how to have a good conversation right. with someone. And that's a learned skill, you know, the understanding of what goes into making a great conversation is a skill that we should all learn because ultimately, if we spend more time looking at our phone screens than talking to each other, no good will come from that. The way that we form connections, the way that we alleviate stress is not through doom scrolling on Twitter. It's through sitting down with someone that we love, someone we admire, someone we trust and having a conversation with them. And I'm trying to put that back into the heart of our lives. And I'm doing that through a range of extraordinary guests that I've interviewed for it from God, Matthew Syed to um, Lorraine Kelly to <coughs> Mary McAleese, the former president of Ireland to FTSE 100 um, chair of, of, of companies some extraordinary people are in this book. John Sutherland, a former police crisis negotiator about really difficult conversations, right? And how you have them and what you learn from them. So it's just a brilliant, brilliant book. I've got to say, I mean, I, of course I would say that, but I'm just so proud of it. And I think it will be such an important tool for us to, to reconnect with understanding that is a learned skill. It's not just something you do. It's something you can be better at, like going to the gym right? Anything that you practice, you'll be better at and you can be better at conversations. The quick fire questions at the end, my man. Go on. What are your remaining ambitions? I'd like to work back in the music industry in a more holistic way. I think one of the things that I'm really looking forward to actually is, is reconnecting with the music industry, knowing what I know now, knowing who I know now, because I work with a lot of artists still actually behind the scenes and talk to artists and as you well know, mm -hmm. um, and that's something I really want to expand upon. Who has provided you with the biggest inspiration in your life? 
I mean, my biggest inspiration would be be my mum, my dad, my wife, my brother, my kids. And I think outside of my closest family, Shabs and a guy called Rick Haythornthwaite, I think. And Rick Haythornthwaite's a fascinating guy, a former global chairman of um, MasterCard, now chairman of Ocado and the AA. And, you know, I feel totally blessed that I have people like that in my phone, right, that I can just call up and say, I need a bit of advice. You know, that's it's amazing. You know, everyone needs a mentor. Everyone needs a mentor. If you were trying to encourage someone to follow your footsteps into the music business, what would you tell them not to do? Well, I'd tell them not to talk more than you listen. You know, you don't need to be the loudest in the room to be the best in the room. I've learned a lot about that, actually. And the obvious one is just don't be a dick, right? Like, you know what I mean? Like this idea that you have to be hardcore and this and that and this and that. If you're a dick, you will draw other dicks to you. And trust me, you don't want to spend your life surrounded by idiots. And finally, you've been an artist, a promoter, done club promotions and been a plugger, a DJ, journalist, amazing radio presenter, acclaimed TV presenter now, and author. Does the boy from Harlow think he's finally escaped the strangulation and the small town and can live freely and breathe easy? No. Why not? It's all about levels, isn't it? I can't just jump on my own jet and go off whenever I want and go and hang out at an island and do all that kind of stuff. I'm a, I'm a wage slave, right? Still, to a certain extent, right? So in that respect, but I'm investing in my kids. You know, I pay for their education, uh, which means we go without certain things for that. Um, but that's because I'm in a position where I can do that. My yeah. parents weren't in a position where they could do that. But then, of course, you get to a certain stage, Adrian, where you think, I was running away from that. And then I get to a certain age and I understand that that's where I came from and that's who helped make me who I am. And you go back to it. You run away from it without realising that actually you're running in a circle and you kind of come back to it. But you come back to it without any of the, the insecurities and you have agency. You can visit it by choice, which is the difference, rather than being trapped in it. And you're happy. Yeah, I, yeah, I am. I, you know, I, there's still, there's always, dude, you know, the creative industries, you're always, is that enough? Have I done that? Have I done that? Like, because you can't, I can't sit here and go, this is the best thing that's ever happened to me where I'm at right now because I don't know what tomorrow is and I don't know what next year is. I've just been asked to be in something which will be my first tiniest acting job, but I've been asked to do it from someone who is like an extraordinary and an extraordinarily successful screenwriter. And he's wrote a piece for me. You're the first person to know this, actually. I haven't told anyone this. Um, in a big drama and I've got a tiny bit in it and that's something as well I wanted to do. I wanted to do some scripted kind of acting. So, and that's coming this year. So um, we're filming that at the end of April 
don't know. So it'll be a tiny bit. It'll be an absolute tiny bit. I, I, mean, I doubt I'll be even in it for like two minutes. But it's it's just something amazing because he wrote this these these like I don't know five lines for me. But but yeah. And the only thing I can say to you is Nihal Arthur Nika, the wearer of many hats, but also a good friend. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us. So expansive and so eloquent across a range of subjects, but also for showing out and doing what you've done, Nihal, because I don't think that you realise, I say this to a lot of our guests, what it means to have someone like yourself where you are doing what you do in the way you do it. And whilst you may not think that you're a role model, there are an awful lot of people, including a lot of us, that really believe that you are and that you carry a torch. So from the entire crowd of the Did You Know podcast, also the good friends and family that you have in the business, thank you very much. Anything for you, Adrian. Anything for you, mate. I'm Adrian Sykes. Thanks for listening to Did You Know, a Downstreet production. Our thanks to Nihal for sharing his stories and to my partner in crime and true pioneer, Danny D. Thanks also to Sean Springer, our production team of Cass Denton and Lanique Swartz, and to Ella Ruby on the socials. Our theme tune is composed by Vega Brothers. Honourable mentions to Dave Roberts and Tim Ingham at MBW for their support. You'll soon be able to apply to be mentored by the guests of the Did You Know podcast. Keep listening for further information. Did You Know is available wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure that you subscribe to never miss an episode. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star review. And look out for our next episode, where I'll be talking with Colin Batzer, president and co-founder of the EGA Music Group, about his remarkable journey and career to date. This was Did You Know. Until the next time.